Welcome to the Inside the Board Study Smarter series dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed on your exam. All right, today it's part two. We're continuing our discussion from last time. And without any delay, let's get right into today's content. All right, so now we're going to move into our question dissection session. So where I get to kind of act like the attending and ask questions. And Dr. Costello gets to be put on the hot seat and kind of work through these questions and show us what she's thinking and some of the little like high yield facts we should know not only for like boards, but also for the wards. So I'll get right into it. The clinician evaluates a two-day-old baby girl for new onset symptoms of irritability, poor feeding, vomiting, and loose stools. She was born healthy at 37 weeks gestation to a 28-year-old prima gravida via spontaneous vaginal delivery. The mother did not receive any prenatal care, and the pregnancy was remarkable for intrauterine growth restriction. Physical examination reveals a small-for-age, tremulous, tachypnic, and diaphoretic neonate with a high-pitched cry. No congenital abnormalities or dysmorphic features are seen, and the rest of the examination is unremarkable. Which of the following medications may be used to treat the condition of the baby? Is it A. Morphine B. Naloxone C. Naltrexone or D. Heroin What do you think, Dr. Casillo? Well, I wonder what everybody can shout out your answer to yourself wherever you're listening. But I would go with morphine. And you would be right. (laughs) Yay. Does everyone do that right? I mean, when you see the answer, you get it right. I mean, everyone, is that just me? You get that internal, like, I think it's that dopamine surge where you're like, yay, it's right. Yeah. Oh, no, it definitely happens. I think it's like, uh, it's probably one of the reasons like people are medical students, like you just like getting answers right. Like it's, It feels good to get things right. <laughs> but even if you didn't, we'll kind of go through some things maybe that, you know, you can get it right the next time because we exactly. all, you know, at some point answer question wrong. It's all about learning and getting better. So for starters, what kind of cued you in to that answer? Because it seemed like you got it really quickly. Well, I think, you know, whenever I'm kind of looking at a a question, you're trying to think, you know, obviously, I think it's always good. I like to kind of what's going to be the final question that they're, they're asking for. So, you know, in this, you got to be thinking, well, what condition does this baby have? And then, you know, what are the typical treatments? So it's kind of that second level question. So not only do you got to recognize what, you know, is the underlying disease process, but then also, how do you treat it? So in this them really the the baby is most likely suffering from neonatal abstinence syndrome due to withdrawal of opioids. So I think that, you know, in my state where I practice West Virginia, we see a lot of this because we have a high use of opioids in our state. But when you have interuterine exposure to opioids due to maternal use, whether it's prescription opioids or maybe medicines they get off the street or, or drugs they get off the street, like heroin, that can lead to an increased risk of interuterine growth restriction, can also cause sudden infant death syndrome, or it can cause neonatal abstinence syndrome, which is what it gets at here. So neonatal abstinence syndrome usually presents within about two days after birth for 
notably like heroin withdrawal, but it can differ depending upon whatever substance the the patient was exposed to. And in, in my state, you know, unfortunately, you can see the, the baby being exposed to multiple substances. And so symptoms typically are irritability, a high-pitched cry, sleeping and feeding difficulties. They can have tremors or seizures or autonomic dysfunction like wetting, sneezing, tachypnea, vomiting, diarrhea. So I think this is really getting at kind of, you know, what is going on. And so the irritability, the poor feeding, the vomiting, the loose stools, that gets, you know, you kind of thinking of that. And then the mother not having prenatal care. And then, they're, you know, they do tell you that there's inter, interuterine growth restriction. So I think that, you know, paired with them, what you find on physical exam, that you're thinking of neonatal abstinence syndrome. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to say as a side note, when you see this in person in the NICU, like you won't ever forget it. You won't ever forget this question stem because it is like heart-wrenchingly sad <laughs> to see it. Yeah. Or even in like the newborn nursery at, at our institution, like we drug screen all of our pregnant moms. And so sometimes we'll be cued in, you know, if the mother may doesn't, if perhaps the mother doesn't give it in the history then, you know, we can keep our eye out for it and, and we monitor those babies for a longer period of time. And, and certainly, yeah, when you go into a NICU and you have multiple babies because they're potentially getting treated with morphine, which we can talk about what the primary treatment of it is, you know, before that, or even as they're going through that withdrawal type syndrome, you certainly, it's impactful and it will stick with you from a clinical experience perspective. So we have an infant, we have a baby that is obviously, unfortunately, withdrawing from an opioid exposure. What do you do? Like, what's the kind of the progression from, okay, I recognize this, how do I make it better? So you first have to be looking for it. So if you have a history in the, if if in the history, you know that there's exposure, you want to be looking for those symptoms that we talked about in our center, we do kind of a scoring system. But once you're kind of on the lookout for it, and then you identify that someone is significant, usually primarily we try to do symptomatic care. So what can you calm the infant? So swaddling, small frequent feed, a low stim environment. Those are some of the things that we try to do and then monitor to see because we don't know what the exposure, how much maybe the mom used early in the pregnancy and then stopped or Maybe the mom used up to, I mean, I've, I've seen babies born, literally the needle has still been in the mom's arm when like EMS has brought them in, you know? Um, so you're talking about kind of right up to delivery. And so, you know, you try to do those symptomatic treatments first, but then if those don't work, you know, we really want to try to avoid someone getting to the seizure level or where they're having, you know, more severe symptoms from this. And so that's where you might lead to a pharmacologic treatment, which is, Typically morphine, which was the answer in this question, but, you know, the other treatments include methadone or buprenorphine if that supportive treatment doesn't work. And so in my hospital, we use morphine, different centers, wherever you go to school, or if you're a resident or a faculty, there might be a little bit of variation in regards to what pharmacologic treatment, but more and more centers are having protocols that they have, you know, doses that are based and they they will wean that taper based upon what symptoms the the baby is still exhibiting. Okay. Yeah. And then I think one other thing 
this might not show up on a test, but if morphine isn't an option or, you know, we talked about that low stim environment, you know, when you dose morphine, it is a short acting opioid. And so you actually have to dose it every, what, like three to four hours. And so that's kind of like the opposite of a low stim environment. So if morphine is not an option, they might be going for methadone because that's only dosed like twice a day, I believe. And so the con of that is you can't titrate the dose, right? Right. Yeah. So it's, it's a lot harder because the methadone is longer acting. So you can't make those, those changes as frequently to hopefully, you know, get the, the baby off of the, the medication. So again, every center does it a little bit differently in what they choose. But in this question, the other, you know, stems are not right. I mean, heroin, which is one of the drugs. I mean, morphine could be an abuse drug as well, but, you know, heroin is not a, a drug that we give in the, the inpatient setting. And then naloxone and naltrexone, those are more what you would use to either stop, you know, naltrexone for cessation of opioid use or naloxone, you know, to treat opioid intoxication. So, that's why those aren't the, the right choices when you're working through that. If perhaps you're a little bit stumbled, you kind of go and say, oh, what are these other medicines used for? Right. We definitely wouldn't want to give this little baby naloxone or we'd make everything worse. <laughs> so Correct. Yeah. yeah. It's just, it's interesting because you, you know, you're like, oh my gosh, I actually have to like give this little tiny infant morphine. Like I need to give them opioids, but that's really the treatment in this case. It is. Yeah. And since we talked about advocacy, I think it's very important. You're not going to get tested on this, but we advocate a lot about neonatal abstinence syndrome in West Virginia because we have a high amount of opioid addiction. You know, we have many people who suffer from substance use disorder. And so when I'm talking about advocacy for this, it's really important that we get the terminology right. One of my big pet peeves is when literally I'll see it on headlines where it's like baby born addicted to opioids. Babies are not born addicted. They should not be called addicted babies. They are, and Amy did this very smoothly. She talked about like this baby who was exposed because that's really what's happening. They're exposed and they're withdrawing from that dependence. But addiction, remember, and Amy could probably go into this more because she's interested in psychiatry. Addiction is more of a, you know, you have to have that drive to want to continue to go back to have this. And it's more of a psychiatric condition where these babies are not born addicted. They are exposed. And I think that's really important because unfortunately addiction, it shouldn't, but it does have a little bit of a stereotype around it. And when we're coming to advocacy in the pediatric world, you know, we talk about substance exposed or, you know, if you wanted to say opioid exposed instead of that addicted. And I think that's a really important distinction. So I do this all the time. I mentioned my mentor earlier, like he messages me all the time about like, what's the right way to call this? You know, I want to refer to it properly to make sure that you truly understand the significance of the issue. So that's a little advocacy twist on that question. That's why I have you here. <laughs> and that just shows you that like language and your use of that language is very important. And it's good to learn these things now. So Dr. Costello, I'm going to move on to the next question. Hope you're ready. A nine-month-old infant is brought in for a routine checkup. His parents state that he can pull up to stand and can cruise around the house with support. He said his first word, mama, two weeks ago, and since then has started saying mama four to five times a day. 
He can hold his feeder cup and drink milk independently. The parents also state that he smiles socially. However, he does not play pat cake. He knows how to wave goodbye. He likes to enjoy looking around and fancies bright lights around him. What is the most appropriate next step in the management of this child? Is it A. Reassure and routine follow-up B. Perform screening for autism C. Perform audiological examination or D. Check gross motor muscle function So what do you think the answer is? I'll give all the listeners out there some time to think what they are thinking of it too. But I'm going to go with reassure and have routine follow-up. Ding, 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 ding. Correct. (laughs) Enjoy your dopamine rush. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. All right. Two for two. So this question is pretty much getting at... I think something that's kind of dreaded about the pediatrics clinical clerkship, which is like our pediatric milestones. And I mean, this is, I mean, you would have to know kind of pediatric milestones to have a chance at answering this question. So would you like to go into kind of like, I guess, what you were thinking when you were going through the question in terms of the milestones? Yeah, I definitely think this is bread and butter peds, right? So peds, whether there's a peds question, they love to ask about developmental milestones. If there's any pediatric or med peds residents out there or triple board residents or even child psych residents out there, you know, you're going to be tested on the developmental milestones. I personally don't have any children yet, but, you know, people who, my colleagues who have had children, they say it somehow gets easier because you then learn these milestones as, you know, your child is going through them, or maybe if you're around a, a younger person, but However, you're going to remember them. It's very important, you know, that you touch on, you know, and understand what the developmental milestones are. So first thing is, what's the age of, and and I think it's sometimes easier to, to know, okay, at what age should they be doing a certain milestone? Because everybody has a little bit of, you know, they kind of, I don't, I'm not thinking of a good metaphor. Everyone kind of catches up you know, there might be a little bit of delay, a little bit that's acceptable. But then we start to worry about in pediatrics, like when is it too long of a delay? That's what we're really trying to get out for intervention, right? So we want to be able to identify significant developmental delay, because we know that early intervention to try to help them catch back up is going to be really important. Or maybe we need to look for a reason why they're, they're delayed. And so sometimes developmental milestones may show up when they're trying to get you to you know, make a diagnosis of another condition that might have a developmental delay. So in this age group, he's not playing pat a cake, which I think is what they always try to throw you off. Like they always try to give you something that like, oh, he's not doing this yet, but he gets the rest of the milestones that he should be getting. And so a nine month old should be able to pull to stand, cruise, say two to three words, grab objects and, and wave bye bye. And so really in this situation, even though he's not playing pat a cake, you would just want to reassure and then do routine follow up. That would be the next best step in this. And so, yeah, I think there's different ways to do it. Like I've made flashcards before doing a table or something that can kind of help you with these developmental milestones that you're going to remember kind of what are the key points at the different stages of and, you know, it can be challenging, right? Because there's milestones in different, like fine motor, gross motor, speech. So it can be challenging. So I definitely get that this is probably one of the things that 
you know, or it's what leads people to do pediatrics because there are developmental and behavioral pediatricians where like this is their thing. They are, you know, all about the the development and the milestones. Yeah, I will say this was probably one of the more, I guess, like challenging parts of pediatrics for me, at least initially. And I don't know if maybe you can speak to this as well, but I like as I was like progressing through and I saw more and more kids like in the clinic and then like in the hospital. I was just kind of able to go like look at a child and just like in the first couple of seconds of seeing them be like, oh, yeah, like this six month old is doing everything that like they should be doing. And I mean, yes, at one point you are going to be like at least memorizing this, but I think it does come to you as well. Like you have to put in the work, but then you've just seen enough of them that you start going, oh, yeah, like that, that they look normal. They're acting normal. Yeah, I definitely think it's one of those things as you practice it more, you get better at it. And, you know, just when you're thinking generally about development, you tend to go outward from being back to lift like your head and neck. So then you go from like, you know, then to your limbs to dexterities in your limbs. So when you're just thinking of as you get older, what are things that we should be achieving? And this is why it's really important that kids get routine care. So when we're talking about pediatrician visit. I mean, in the first year of life, you know, you're getting a newborn checkup. So we just had like a newborn case. And then, you know, you have that newborn checkup after you get discharged from the hospital, then usually like maybe one week or two week checkup for the weight. And then many times you might be seen at one month and then two months. And then we space it out a little bit more like four, six, nine, 12, 15. But I mean, you're seeing your pediatrician a lot. And that's just kind of the routine well child checks. And this is why it's important in pediatrics that we talk about like well child care because we do a lot obviously providing immunizations at that well child check but really it's important for developmental milestones and so from an advocacy standpoint this is really important when we talk about early intervention and so the importance of having like access to medical care because i just rattled off like is that like 10 visits in the first year someone <laughs> yes. who doesn't have health insurance that's really expensive. And it's not likely that you're going to go seek that care for your child. And so, you know, we would love for there to be 100% coverage of pediatrics. You know, in, in my state of West Virginia, we were doing pretty good. We were like above, you know, 90. We kind of slipped a little bit, you know, over time. My state expanded Medicaid. So we have a lot of children who are on Medicaid or CHIP, which you mentioned I'm on the executive board for for my state. But it's things like this that are really important because if children are coming in, and getting evaluated for those milestones, if we do notice a delay, then we can get them the proper care that they need and get them into things. In in my state, it's called birth to three. It's kind of those early intervention, physical and occupational therapy. I mean, we're even talking about interprofessional education, Amy, where, you know, getting the kids the development assistance that they need so that they can then catch up and really know that if we can get that early intervention, it leads to better outcomes down the road. And so that's always a challenge in pediatric advocacy because kids don't vote. So I'm always like, hey, you know, like if we invest in children down the road, we're not going to be spending as much on some of the things that we could have corrected early on. And we want children to be able to grow and thrive and, and lead productive lives and they can, you know, pursue their goals and dreams. So this is why it's really important to know. One, it's important that kids are getting seen by their pediatrician or their healthcare professional so that we can make sure that these developmental milestones are being met. So at every routine child visit, we should be 
looking to make sure these kids are meeting those developmental milestones. Or like what you mentioned, Amy, when you're trying to learn this, like even if you're seeing a kid in the hospital for a cough, figure out what are their developmental milestones in that and and just learning about it. And obviously if they're sick, they might not be as chipper as they would be normally, but you can still learn a lot or just take that time to learn about, hey, what milestones should this child be achieving? And then see if, if if it is accurate and talk to the parents or the guardians about what things they've achieved up until that point. Okay. Yeah. So I guess just to like close off this question, I wanted to go through some of the wrong answers and talk about maybe stems that you would be looking for with those wrong answers. So for instance, uh, one of the answer choices was perform audiological examination and the stem would kind of be leaning towards like they'd probably be delayed in their speech. You're probably not going to see it in a nine month old, but you might see it in like an 18 month old or they might present with kind of like ADHD type symptoms. So you're like, oh man, like medication, medication. But a lot of times the correct answer for those stems developmentally wise is getting an audiological exam because they can't hear. There's something wrong with their ears. And so they can't listen to directions and they're not developing language correctly because they can't understand what you're saying to them. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think you want to be thinking about that for the same thing about whether or not this could be their hearing. Usually we would perform screening for autism later once there's that more speech development. And then this child seems to be doing okay from a gross motor standpoint. And so I would argue that you're probably saying, I guess it depends upon what they're trying to get at of like, what kind of gross motor muscle function, whether I don't know if they're going as to the level of like, you know, EMG or something or versus just, you know, doing a good exam, which you probably would have already had. And this is talking about what's the most appropriate next step in management. So Mm -hmm. in pediatrics, a lot of times it is that reassure and routine follow up is, is a common theme you'll see in pediatrics. I think when I was a medical student, I'm like, really, I'm just providing more reassurance, you know, but it's something that we do in real life a lot of times. I mean, I spend a lot of my day providing reassurance and and just making sure that we get that follow up because if you follow up and they're still delayed, then that might need to lead to a certain action. But that is something, quote unquote, real life, not test life that we do all the time of saying, hey, I just want to see you back and we'll we'll keep an eye on this to see if if they're going to reach that that milestone. Oh, yeah. I remember that a lot on my pediatric rotation. It was just like, oh, no, you know, like, we'll just, you know, come back in a couple of weeks and we'll just, you know, see if they've caught up or if this kind of resolves or, you know, if we have to do further testing kind of thing, which is, you know, it's just interesting that like, I feel like that's one of the fields where that happened more so than in others. So I know that you you did mention this briefly that later on, so later than nine months is when we typically screen for like an autism spectrum disorder. And I just wanted to say that, like, I guess during those routine wild child checks, you normally are screening um, at the 18-month appointment and the 24-month appointment because, like you said at that point, like, they have hopefully developed, like, what should be fairly normal, like, social interaction and some forms of language. And so you can't really judge where they really are until they should have hit those, like, kind of bigger major milestones. 
Yeah, it's a great point. And I think that's the difference. I mean, we're going to be doing, you know, developmental screening, which is what, you know, is happening at this nine month and behavioral screening. But when you talk about that specific autism screening, that's at what you said, Amy, 18 and 24 months, but we're always assessing, you know, developmental milestones and, and then doing that more formal developmental and behavioral screening at certain ages, including nine months. Oh, okay. So I see. So I think what was so important, like what you had to kind of pick apart in the stat or like in the question, like, I guess like answer choice. So it says perform screening for autism. And so like, we're not screening for autism this young, like the screening tests happen at 18 and 24 months. So, okay. I see you question writers. Yeah. Like specifically for ASD is when we're going to be, you know, screening for autism. So I think the question would have been much harder if it was like at 18 months, but obviously I think the developmental stuff would have been different, you know, but they tell you it's like nine months and and that's what I think they're more so getting at. But yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that about when we should be doing the screening specifically for, for autism. Of course. So you ready to move on to the next question? Let's do it. All right. A nine-week-old infant is brought to the pediatrician by his parents for the chief complaint of irritability and fussiness. The mother reports that the baby was born full-term and developed normally until around three weeks of age. Around that time, the baby began to cry inconsolably for hours nearly every day. Parents have made sure the baby is fed and changed. They have tried the bouncy seat, the swing, and stroller rides without any benefit. The father states that he has now resorted to driving the interstate for at least an hour every evening so the mother can get a small break. He states that he has to drive on the interstate because if he gets stopped at a red light, the baby will immediately start to scream. After reviewing the normal growth charts and completing a thorough physical exam, which is unremarkable, what recommendations can be given to the parents? Is it A. The infant should be referred to a pediatric gastroenterologist for further evaluation. B. The infant can be monitored closely without intervention. C. They should take the infant to the emergency department for a septic workup. Or D, they should try giving the infant herbal calming tea after every other feed. What do you think the answer is, Dr. Costello? Well, let's see here. I'm going to go with the infant can be monitored closely without any intervention. So I'm not going to refer them to PGI or send to the ED for a septic workup. Definitely not thinking that the herbal calming tea is going to be something. So I think this is another example of that. We're going to kind of monitor the infant closely. Yep, exactly right. And I really liked how you just like kind of worked through that because that's a really good test taking strategy is sometimes like maybe if you don't know that answer immediately, you can work through the answer choices and go, okay, well, this is obviously wrong. This is obviously wrong. This is also obviously wrong. So this is the right answer. Yeah, I think everybody has different strategies. Like sometimes you might just know the answer, but I always try to go like what you think your first answer is. That's usually what it it is. But if you've struggled with what are the other choices, then, you know, you kind of can walk through them. But am I allowed to like pimp the podcast host? Is that how this happens? I mean, what do you think is going on in this vignette, Amy? Oh, you're turning the tables on me. So I actually had this as a an infant and my parents have regaled me with this. Actually, this vignette is very similar to like the horror stories. I'm air quoting this that my parents had when I was an infant. So this baby has colic. 
one thing I did want to point out about the stem specifically was, so the baby is crying at these red lights, but calming with kind of that constantly moving car. That's actually like a reassuring sign that there isn't some like underlying organic cause for the crying. So like we don't have like pyloric stenosis going on. We don't have a malrotation or some kind of like blockage going on because then you'd be seeing like peritoneal signs in the latter like options. Yeah. I mean, I think colic is, is tough because it's, you know, at, at this point, like they're nine weeks of age, like usually parents are pretty tired, right? Because, you know, the baby usually is being fed every three to four hours. And then, you know, here with the colic, they just have this, this period of, of crying. And so with, with colic, you know, I think in this stem, kind of what you were hitting on Amy, like, you know, when the, when the car's moving, the baby's fine. And then it's just like when it's stopped, they're not versus like, like you said, if this was something going on, like that kid, even when the car was moving would be like crying. And so there are interventions that are helping and really colic will resolve 90% of the time by 16 weeks of life. So it is something that usually will, will go away. That's why we don't need to refer to a specialist or have any other further testing as long as they're growing well and meeting those developmental milestones, which we just talked about in the last question. So as long as they're they're meeting those, you wouldn't necessarily need to seek care with the exception of and, and this was going to be my advocacy point on this is that child abuse is I think that's a, a big deterrent for people to go into pediatrics because it's hard for them to handle like a child being abused. And it in, certainly it's tough. I will say in my career, I think the child abuse cases are the ones that stick with you. They're the ones that, you know, you go home and you're definitely little, you know, you're bummed. And from an advocacy standpoint, this is where I really try to be like, what can we do to prevent this? And how can we better identify signs of child abuse? And and also when we talk about advocacy, kind of that individual advocacy or raising awareness, this is where it's really important at like an individual level. So are we providing good education to parents when they're in the hospital or guardians, you know, so that if they do get frustrated with their child, what are going to be ways that, you know, they don't abuse them, they don't, you know, shake the baby to try to get them to stop crying, which is something that you could see in this, you know, retinal hemorrhages is a big pathognomonic thing that we worry about child abuse and, and shaken baby syndrome. And so if there was a concern for child abuse, you could potentially see like the retinal hemorrhages, the tearing, like a subdural hematoma. So those tearing of the bridging veins, fractures, particularly in someone who's not ambulatory. So a nine week old is not going to be walking. So if they have a fracture, you know, how did they get that bruises, particularly of different stages, or failure to thrive or poor weight gain, or if they don't seek medical care. So this is kind of one of those areas that you can do kind of individual advocacy, and then also community advocacy, and just making awareness about, you know, how do we prevent child abuse? And how do we prevent that and making sure that there's resources available to the family? So that, you know, we can protect the, the child. And, you know, again, it, it's tough on the entire team when you see a child who's been impacted by child abuse or neglect. But this is where, you know, if you're an advocate and, and whether you're in the outpatient setting and you can be doing that anticipatory guidance education or before they even leave the hospital, making sure we get some of that education, you're advocating for that child and to keep them in a safe environment. Right. So... I guess what I'm taking from all of that is, first of all, colic is this condition that 
you reassure most of the time about, but then you also have to check in with the parents and remind them or, or counsel them and say, you're right, you're not doing anything wrong. Like your baby just has this thing and it is most likely going to resolve. But right now it's really frustrating and you're really sleep deprived. And this STEM was like a classic setup for what could have eventually turned into a child abuse question. But luckily, actually, they mentioned in the STEM that, you know, dad was actually taking the baby in the car for an hour so that mom could maybe get some shut eye or, you know, just decompress and relax for a little bit. So they were actually doing those healthy preventative coping mechanisms that you might, you know, mention if you are counseling a a family and they've never had an infant before and they don't know that, you know, this is something that could be, they could have a baby with colic. Right. Absolutely. And I think it's also important. We didn't talk really about the herbal tea one, but I kind of said in the beginning when I was going through my process of why not, I mean, herbal tea is not going to be an appropriate recommendation for, you know, an infant. This is a nine week old herbs or herbal supplements are not regulated kind of by the FDA. So we don't have, you know, it's not reliable of what we know, the, the herbal doses and in infants, notably, if you're giving water or tea, you can cause electrolyte imbalances, notably hyponatremia. You can also impact their weight gain because you're giving them water or tea, which it doesn't have calories. And so when you're talking about a nine week old, you know, breastfed is the best fed. Um, but you know, if they're, um, on a formula fed infant as well, that's, they should be getting, you know, breast milk or formula at, at this age. And, you know, herbal tea would definitely not be appropriate for this infant. I like that nice little advocacy there, but a fed baby is a happy baby, is a happy mom, is a happy pediatrician. So <laughs> yes, since you shared a story, I my mom has a rheumatoid arthritis, so she was on methotrexate, so she could not breastfed. So I was not breastfed. So I'm really happy that, you know, fed is best. But, you know, from an advocacy standpoint, breast milk is the best milk, but there are situations in which, you know, you have to provide other forms of nutrition, but certainly advocate for for breastfeeding for those who are able to do it. Yeah, absolutely. But then we have to remember to tell them to take vitamin D, right? Because breast milk doesn't really have that naturally. We have to supplement. (laughs) Yeah, I think, yep, we got to make sure that we're doing, again, different education. We do a lot of education and anticipatory guidance and pediatrics. And so making sure we do that depending upon and having those discussions with the the family. So you're assessing that development that we've talked a lot about, but also their feeding as well. All right. So let's move on to our final question of the day. A two-week-old child is brought by his parents to the clinician due to recurrent regurgitation. Birth history is notable for shoulder dystocia and forceps-assisted delivery. During the examination, the clinician observes an absent palmar grasp reflex. Which of the following conditions is most likely to be seen in this child based on the clinical examination findings? Is it A. Spastic quadriplegia, B. Hydroencephaly, C. Megaencephaly, or D. Herb's palsy? What are you thinking on this one, Dr. Casella? So I am going to go with Herb's palsy. Okay, you'd be right. So, yay, yay, I got <laughs> yay. another one right. Okay. Woo. Like I said, 
celebrate the small things. You got to celebrate. So, but even if you didn't get it right, it's okay. You'll get it right next time. That's why you're listening to this podcast. (laughs) Right. So I guess when I'm working through this, obviously I think in pediatrics, it's really important to always look at the age. So, you know, what is the age in peds? I think, you know, particularly in peds is going to be really important. And then history. So I think them in the STEM giving you like the birth history had shoulder dystocia and there was a forceps assisted delivery. To me, that's making me think of some different things when I'm looking at these hydroencephaly or megalencephaly, you're looking more at the, the brain size. And so, you know, I think they would have had to give us something, you know, on clinical exam that they found like something with the, the head circumference. And then it seems like it's just, you know, there's an absent palmar grass reflex. So that's normal in this age group. So that's why the age is really important. And, you know, that reflex is mediated at the level of the spinal cord. But in herbs palsy, there's injury to the brachial plexus. So if you're in first year medical school, you know, you're learning about the brachial plexus. And then the fourth years are like, if you're going to go do surgery, you're like, oh, I need to refresh on what the brachial plexus is. But all of us, we should be remembering our anatomy. But, you know, Herb's palsy is that injury to the brachial plexus. So depending upon the extent of the injury, that could impact the the grass reflex and that can be damaged. And then you can have a reduced or absent grass reflex. And so if you see like asymmetry in that grass reflex where one side is stronger than the other, that would be something that's also consistent with herbs palsy. Spastic quadriplegia, so quadra four, like that's more diffuse. So you would be getting more in the stem as to, you know, what, you know, if that's spastic quadriplegia. So I think you would be getting a little bit more where this is really the only thing they give us that it's an absent palmer grass reflex. And so, you know, when you're thinking of that in the stem or you get that in the stem, that's what's going to be consistent with the condition that would interfere with afferent sensory information to the spinal cord or that subsequent efferent motor output. And so, again, the grass reflex usually is going to be present in this age, so it's absent, but the grass reflex is usually present in conditions when you get a little bit, you know, that it affect the brain and higher cortical areas. So if you did have spastic quadriplegia, you would likely have that reflex or you might notice it being stronger than it would be normally. And so I think when you're going through this, they definitely gave you a bunch of things that is going to want you to be thinking of herbs palsy. And you guys probably see that picture like in your brain of how the the herbs palsy is. I don't know how you would describe it, but it's kind of like, I'll give me backward five or whatever if you're like, Is it like waiter's tip? Waiter's tip. Yeah. Like give me the tip or whatever, like, you know, like behind the back five, I guess. But yeah, like the waiter tip. So very good. I liked how you were like, well, there's no way that this is spastic quadriplegia because first of all, the stem is a little thin or sparse in terms of like, oh, they probably would have said something about like a lower limb exam. And also that reflex actually probably would have been stronger instead of like absent. So it's like, oh, I already got rid of one. And then I liked kind of how you just walked through it and you're just like, oh, well, I know the birth history. And so there's only a couple of differentials that I can think of that, you know, they're putting that into the stem. So they're really directing me towards this one thing or these few things. And so you just find that thing in the answer choices. Yeah. 
And I love this reflex in kids. It's one of my favorite things about being a pediatrician. Like when you go in for a newborn exam and like that baby just like grabs your finger and like they won't let go, it kind of like melts your heart. And you're just like, I have one of the best jobs ever. Like I'm getting paid to do this. And so it's just so cute. But obviously in this one, there's no grass refin on that. So again, talking about advocacy, I think this is important. This is something that's like recognized when someone is at the clinic and then you can get them proper intervention. A lot of times it's physical therapy. So I'm a big fan of physical therapy. I tell my physical therapist all the time that she's like the best. She like helped me through a ruptured Achilles. So there's physical therapy that's needed for children of all ages. And so this is something that if you can identify it, and it's something that the history is really important because we should be on the lookout for this. And then you could get them early interventions that they can hopefully regain function of that long term and, and get the resources for the, the parent and the child. There we go. One teaching point I guess I wanted to talk about with this question in particular, because recognizing that the Palmer grasp and when it's supposed to be there and when it's not supposed to be there is actually like a pretty common question when it comes to boards. So I just have like a few of like the main ones and like when they appear and when they disappear. So there's that Moro reflex, which is when you like tap their cheek and the baby starts trying to find something to eat. And that's around when they're born. And then it should disappear between two to three months. So if the reflex is still around a couple, you know, when the child is six to seven months, do you think you'd start being a little concerned, Dr. Costello? Is that the Mora reflex? Or are we talking about like the suck reflex? Mora is like oh. kind of the Superman one. So like when you drop them, you kind of get that Superman one. So I just want to make sure we're talking about Oh, those. you're totally right. I just completely goofed on that. Yeah, Moro is the startle reflex. So that's yeah. when you drop the movie and you're like, oh. So yeah, that's what that one is also fun, but also startling, hence the name like startling, like you do it, and then they kind of like, move their hands outward. But yeah, the, the Moro reflex is the, the one I think you were talking about before would be more like the suck reflex, where if you're, you're touching, then you would like want to get the suck reflex. But the Mora reflex usually should be gone by five to six months. If it's still there after five to six months, that's like abnormal. And then also if it's asymmetric at any time, that's, you know, the, the thing with reflexes and in, in this case, they only tell us about one that there's an absent on the one side, but you can compare it to the other side. So when you're talking about the pomegranate reflex, that should be there, you know, usually it's gone by three to six months. And that's where you get that voluntary grabbing. So that's why I said it was so cute with the like involuntary grabbing, because like you can put anything there and they'll like grab for it. Whereas as they get older, they're like, no, I don't want you to touch me. And then you don't get that grasp. Oh. <laughs> um, and then let's see, the one other grasp or the one other reflex I think comes up sometimes is something called like the tonic neck reflex. Is that the fencing one? I know it as the fencer, if that's... Yeah, the I think that's usually like at a two... I think that's like a harder one to get. That's when you the head is turned to one side, like you said, that fencer's position, but you really shouldn't be there for beyond a few seconds. But yeah, that's a little bit, you know, but you you can see that. But the Moro, I do a bunch. The the asymmetric tonic neck reflex, again, that should be gone by six months of age. But yeah, that's more of that fencing position one. Okay. So correct me if I'm wrong. So the ones that like, you know, like clinicians actually use are kind of what the Moro, 
and the Palmer. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, but I definitely think, you know, you, you want to kind of look at all of these. And again, if you have any kind of concern, but, you know, you certainly see that asymmetric tonic neck reflex as well. And certainly for boards, you want to kind of know, I think that goes along with development as to like, what milestone should they be reaching? You can also then like kind of pair in like what type of reflexes should we be seeing. Okay. Well, I just wanted to say thank you so much for breaking down these questions with me and talking to everyone about advocacy. Like I really couldn't have done it without you. <laughs> well, thanks for having me. It's been a good time. I hope everyone learned something. I always learn no matter where you're at in your meta journey, you can always learn. We always have things to learn. So it's always good to refresh as well. But thanks so much for having me and everyone stay safe and stay well. Thanks so much. All right, everyone, that is it for today. Join us next time for even more high yield learning.